It is possible to imagine God welcoming a pilgrim home at the end of his days with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have avoided suffering, withstood temptation, kept yourself pure and unstained from the world, and utterly failed to live the life for which you were created. Would that you had prayed less and lived more. Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and you are in the cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Welcome to our third season of The Cave. We begin with the writer we might choose as the patron saint of the Mystic Cave, Thomas Moore. Not only has he written widely and deeply about the soul, beginning with his bestseller, Care of the Soul, But in his 2014 book, A Religion of One's Own, he scans the same terrain that we explore every time we meet up here. In this episode, I'll review what Moore has to say about some of those facets of the religious life we thought we'd have to leave behind when we wandered away from conventional faith. Prayer, ritual, scripture, community... While Moore himself has eschewed conventional religious practice for what he calls a secular spirituality, he believes that we cannot live a soulful life without a sense of the sacred. In other words, without religion. We just have to learn how to make it our own. Welcome back. On a low bookshelf on the bottom floor of our home, I have on display a clay chalice and paten and two small candle holders fitted with handmade beeswax candles. On another wall, there is a larger bookshelf stuffed floor to ceiling with books that witnessed my theological formation through the years. And on another, an antique display cabinet containing pottery and serving dishes that reminds my wife and me of our English roots. The room is a museum of sorts that pays homage to what has brought us this far. The little bookshelf serves as a shrine to spiritual practice. A meditation bowl leads to mindfulness. Rough-cast models of a Tibetan bell and thunderbolt summon enlightenment. A painted pottery vase with an eagle etched on one side, a spider on the other, evokes something of indigenous spirituality. Sticks of incense engage the senses, and a prayer stool sits on the floor nearby, 
should someone still want to use it. On the lowest shelf, there are books. Along with some personal journals that chronicle my spiritual journey and exercise workbooks that have guided my attempts at physical health and fitness through the years, there are also two Bibles. One is a family heirloom, a zippered red-letter edition, a Christmas gift to my father from his mother when he was eight years old. The other is a plain, leather-bound Bible I received from a parishioner when she was clearing out her attic. There is no inscription on the inside cover, so there are no personal memories attached to it, but I used it in my ministry as a parish priest whenever I needed a floppy Bible to wave in my hand while preaching or to supply the Word of God for worship in a rustic setting. I'm surprised how worn it is. There are no crosses on display on the bookshelf or in the room. I was never a fan of the cross, or at least of its proliferation in Christian churches, or, by extension, worn around the neck as jewelry or tattooed onto the arms of believers or of people wishing to invoke something of Western race and religion in general. In Anglican churches, the cross showed up every time you turned around, poised midair above the altar— carved into the ends of wooden pews, stamped onto the hymnals we held in our hands. Whatever its centrality in Christian belief, whatever the richness of its symbolism, the cross became for me a symbol of the impoverishment of imagination, one symbol to rule them all. There had to be others. Hence, my little shrine. The chalice and patent were a gift to me from friends 40 years ago now in celebration of my ordination to the priesthood. The potter's name appears on the underside of each item painted in cursive script, Barbara Payne. The design is simple but elegant, and I used the set many times for home Eucharists or outdoor services where the church's silver communion vessels would have felt ostentatious. I used to keep the set in its own cardboard box— each piece wrapped separately in foam. It pleases me that, to this day, there are still no chips or cracks. I doubt I will ever use this communion set again, at least for its intended purpose. I allowed my license to lapse when I retired from active ministry, meaning I now have no status as a priest in the church and no authority to preside over its rituals. I'm okay with this. It feels honest. I am no longer the church's representative. But when I hung up my collar, I was not turning my back on the spiritual life. In fact, I was embracing it, the vastness of it, the depth of it, and the unexplored territory that lay out there beyond the church doors. I am now free not only to explore the religious world and all its diverse beliefs and practices, but also to take others with me where I go— to learn from those who were on their own, unique journeys, and to swap stories with seekers from all traditions and from none. It was this new freedom that led me to start the Mystic Cave. I knew I was not alone, that there were many, legions, who, having left conventional faith tied to a particular religious tradition, were, like me, seeking a path that felt real and efficacious in realizing our purpose on earth. One of the great gifts of the podcast early on was the correspondence I received from listeners who felt the connection between my search and theirs, who shared the pain and disappointment we felt in the institutional church, 
but also the delight in widening our spiritual path to take in the mystic depths hidden within each of us and the ancient wisdom of the natural world. It was not long before I began thinking of myself as some sort of New World church greeter, not the one who hands you your pew bulletin as you enter the church, but the one who meets you on the other side of the church doors as you leave the church, the one who says, Welcome back to the world. Let me introduce you to some of the ways God is present here, too. And I need to be clear about this stance, positioning myself on the other side of the church doors. This is not a rejection of religion. It is a search for its fulfillment, but outside of the institutions that hold it captive. Where the church, for one, has quenched the spirit with its need to control the message and contain its practices, I join those who seek a new dispensation of the spirit, perhaps in ways no one has yet imagined, perhaps in ways buried deep in our past. I seek life wherever it is found. And that means not the death of religion, but its rediscovery. And here I need to clarify something else. I am not interested in the reestablishment of institutionalized religion. Such religion is born with the seeds of its own demise already planted within it. Our human need to name God and limit access to God according to our doctrines and rituals, this will always undermine whatever claims we make to the truth we preach and the practices we espouse. For me, it is not about a return to religious beliefs and structures, rather a rediscovery of the essence of those beliefs and structures. The arbiter of this new religious sensibility is not some high court of the holy or exalted council of the wise, as if any human has the ability, let alone the right, to determine the truth of another. It comes not from above at all, but from below, from the deepest experiences and intuitions of honest seekers who are prepared to assume their own path and to share their findings with one another. If there is a communal aspect to this new religion, it forms wherever such stories are told and received, and wherever people are strengthened and affirmed on their own unique journey. And this brings me to Thomas Moore. Moore knows the world of institutionalized religion more than most. As a young teen, drawn by a yearning for the spiritual life, he left home to join a religious order. There, for thirteen years, he was formed and educated by the so-called science of theology and also by the sensuality of the arts. But he wanted more. So he left the cloister for academia, where he taught religious studies. When his academic career faltered, he continued to explore life's great questions through the writings of Carl Jung and the post-Jungian James Hillman, which led to writings of his own. Entering his fifties, one of Moore's books, Care of the Soul, became popular. New York Times bestseller popular, and his life changed. Since then, he has divided his time between writing and speaking and seeing individual clients as a psychotherapist. His subsequent books, among them Soulmates, Dark Nights of the Soul, and A Religion of One's Own, all share a common preoccupation— the recovery in our modern age of soul. What Moore had learned in the religious world is that religion in the West 
has focused on the spirit at the expense of the soul. It has been spiritual rather than soulful. The difference between the two is that spirit ascends, lifting us up and out of the world in search of transcendence. Soul descends, pulling us downward to engage us in the earthiness of the here and now. Spirit is the mountaintops. Soul is the valleys. Both, of course, are part of what it means to be human. We are earthly creatures with a heavenly gaze. But to raise one over the other, making that which is spiritual morally superior to that which is soulful as the church has done, means we are drawn more to the hereafter than simply to the here, more to heaven than to earth. There are two risks in living such a false dichotomy. One is that by denigrating our essential earthiness and denying the body, we are prone to the temptations of the flesh, catching us unawares, as has happened in the fall to earth of so many of the great spiritual leaders. That which remains unconscious, buried, and repressed will only rise up stronger and more lethal for having been denied. We are human, after all, a word that takes as its root the Latin word humus, or of the earth. The other risk of elevating spirit over soul is that by seeking to live for the next world, we end up never actually living in this one. You can be so heavenly-minded, the saying goes, to be of no earthly use. So, it is possible to imagine God welcoming a pilgrim home at the end of his days with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have avoided suffering, withstood temptation, kept yourself pure and unstained from the world, and utterly failed to live the life for which you were created. Would that you had prayed less and lived more. Thomas More would see soulfulness as the way back to ourselves, we who have been spiritually formed by a church concerned more with heaven than earth. In A Religion of One's Own, he writes of practices that would ground us, reawaken our senses, and equip us to live fully and abundantly here and now. He argues against literalism in the interpretation of religious traditions and in favor of creativity in following one's own inspiration. He counsels the modern-day seeker to dig deep into his or her own soul for the mythic story that will guide them along their unique path. We can discover that myth either inside or outside a formal religion, he says, but the journey in the end is no one's but our own. The practices Moore explores sound at first very familiar. He writes of the importance of reading sacred texts, for instance, whatever those texts are, by way of a slow, careful Lectio Divina, allowing the words to sink into the soul. Similarly, plumb the depths of traditional teachings, he says, to discover their essence, identifying the key idea around which the teachings gather— in other words, we should avail ourselves of religious resources already at hand, but deeply. But even more, Moore advocates an attentiveness to what he calls a spirituality of daily life, allowing life itself to be our teacher and guide, paying attention to our dreams, taking seriously the pains and passions of our hearts, 
owning and celebrating the sensuality of our bodies, cultivating a personal relationship with the arts, noticing the magical synchronicities and the visitations of muses and angels. These are not the practices of conventional religion, but of a seeker attuned to the life of soul. Perhaps because Moore himself is likely an introvert, or perhaps because of his spiritual formation in a monastic community, his focus is inward rather than outward. At one point he speaks of going beyond the self, but he doesn't mean out towards others. He means going in, exploring one's own depths, going beneath the personal to discover that which is universal. When he writes of community at all, It is only in the broadest terms of our mystical communion with nature and with the cosmos. And works of compassion and justice-making deserve not even a single mention. For Moore, clearly, the soulful journey is not just inward, it is also solitary. We may quibble with the radical individualism of his approach to soul, as if I alone have a soul, but we together do not. I quibble with it and I seek to flesh out his understanding of soulful religion with a more socially engaged agenda, and that we can do and will do here in the cave. But Moore's contribution to the terrain we ourselves seek to explore out here on the other side of churchland is enormous. Read the book for yourself. We'll gather for an online discussion about it later in the season in one of our Campfire Conversations sponsored by the Mystic Cave Facebook group. We'll also be featuring a lineup of exciting guests chosen to broaden, deepen, and sometimes challenge the practices Moore has set before us as we seek to discover a soulful path of our own. We'll explore poetry as both sacred text and personal prayer. We'll hear how the practice of contemplation takes us deep, deep enough to reunite us with the sacred earth. We'll learn the importance of healthy community to those who have embarked on this lonely journey. We'll study the importance of rituals and how we can create our own to guide us through life's passages. And yes, we'll consider the vital connection between inner soulfulness and outer action as world healers and justice makers. There's a reason I continue to display that pottery communion set on my bookshelf, having given up the right to use it for the official worship of the Church. As much as I enjoyed my role as a parish priest, as much as I felt the humbling privilege of presiding over its rites, I know the real power of that role arises from a deeper place than a license to officiate and a caller to set me apart. I know that the rites themselves are rooted in a human soulfulness that pulses at the heart of the formal ministrations of an institutionalized religion, as old as humanity itself. That cup, that plate, those candlesticks, represent not the accoutrements of a particular religion. They represent the religious impulse itself that burns within each of us awaiting only the moment of awakening when we come home to ourselves and discover the depth and truth residing within our own souls when we rightfully claim a religion of our own.
Thank you so much for listening and for helping me launch a new season of The Mystic Cave. Please, if you want to comment on anything you've heard here, post your thoughts on the Mystic Cave Facebook group or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode and to enjoy a brief backgrounder to each one, you can visit my website and sign up for my blog. My address is www.brianepearson.ca. You can also subscribe to The Mystic Cave wherever you listen to your podcasts to be notified when new episodes come out. Next time, I'm so very pleased to bring you my conversation with Canadian poet Richard Osler, a former business journalist and financial analyst who, for nine years, was the business columnist on the CBC radio program Morningside with the late Peter Zosky. Richard was in his 50s when he returned to writing poetry, and he never gave it up again. Twenty years later, he's still at it, leading workshops and retreats where he teaches poetry not only as therapeutic practice, but spiritual practice as well. Is poetry a secular version of sacred text, I asked him? Is it a form of personal prayer? What place might poetry assume in a religion of one's own? Join me and find out. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Now